The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Previously, in part one of the Ohio Strangler case, you heard the harrowing story of Jane, a woman who barely escaped being kidnapped, raped, and tortured at the hands of a local drifter named Sean Grade in Ashland, Ohio. Miraculously, Jane was able to free herself and call 911, alerting authorities to her life and death situation. In the end, police found and raided the abandoned house she was being held captive in a house turned torture chamber. After rescuing Jane, authorities were able to arrest Sean, preventing a murder and saving Jane's life. But if detectives thought this was where the story would end, they were sorely mistaken. When the remains of two unknown victims were also found in the house, join me now for the horrifying conclusion of the Ohio Strangler case, where you'll learn how Sean Great's arrest for his crimes against Jane was only the beginning of a story that started long before authorities could have ever imagined. Around 3 p.m. on March 10, 2007, a man was picking up scrap metal along a remote stretch of rural road in Marion County, Ohio. The highway ran along fields that by June would be thick with corn and soybeans, but in March it was bare dirt, ready to be tilled and sowed with seeds. As the man explored the brush beyond the road, he came across a startling discovery, a human skull. The rest of the skeletal remains would be discovered once authorities arrived. Eventually it would be determined that the bones belonged to a white woman with brown hair between the ages of 18 and 22. But that's all they were able to determine. A composite sketch would later be released, but there were no leads. The woman's DNA and dental records didn't correspond with anyone in the missing persons databases. Jane Doe's life and death would remain a mystery that would continue to haunt law enforcement for years to come. Nine years later in 2016, the only person on earth who had the answers was led into a police station in Ashland, Ohio, 50 miles away, Sean Great. But no one suspected his connection to the decade-old crime. Instead, 40-year-old Sean Great was being interrogated after a terrified woman had made a courageous 911 call that saved her life. After being arrested, Sean was brought to the Ashland Justice Center, where he sat in an interrogation room, his hands cuffed in front of him. The captain wanted to know the whole story about what exactly he'd done to Jane. More importantly, why? Uh, we walked around and we went back to where I was staying. Okay. 
kind of started fooling around a little bit and then things got carried away. Explain carried away. Um, like, no, don't, you know what I mean? Oh, she didn't want to say no. So they all stopped, but you know, we're, we're not going to, we don't do this. We don't fool around because we won't wait for marriage. You don't fool around. You talking intercourse? Anything. Anything. Okay. All right. No kissing or anything. From Sean's own words, it was clear Jane had verbally indicated she wanted him to stop. The captain asked him point blank if they'd had sex. Sean said they had, but it wasn't consensual sex. It was rape. Against her will? Well, it ended up she didn't like it, and she's really beating herself up about it. It looks like you might have hit her a couple times. I did, because I lost control. I do. Well, let's, let's explore that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Why did you lose control? Um, a lot of it's, does she marry me, marry me, and she won't marry me. And I was like, this is it. Mm -hmm. A lot of leading me on. Mm -hmm. Not only did Sean blame Jane for why he tortured her, he showed the captain a wound on his hand caused by punching her in the face. But the captain didn't care about Sean's injured hand and steered the conversation back to what had happened to Jane. Um, she's saying you tied her down to a bed. I mean, what's the deal with all the straps on the mattresses? I did tie her down. I abducted her. You abducted her? Yes. Explain that. Our game's trying to get down to if she's going to marry me or not. So you just held her there because you wanted to find out if she was going to marry you? A lot of questions and stuff. and Yeah, it's very nightmare. Couldn't yeah. imagine her. You just wanted to make sure she didn't get away because you wanted her? No. What? Explain. I just wanted her to relax and spend some time with me. It's kind of hard for somebody to relax if you're tying them down, don't you think? Yeah. From Sean's own words, the captain had established that he'd abducted, assaulted, and raped Jane for three days and two nights, and even supplied his own bizarre reasoning for the entire horrifying ordeal. He just wanted Jane to relax and spend some time with him. In Sean's warped perception, everything he'd done was justified. But you still did. I mean, you told me you abducted her. What does that mean to you? I mean, I care about her. Abducting somebody means that you care about her? Yeah. In this situation. What do you think should happen to you? It's probably sound that way to keep. Why? She's able to forgive me. In Sean's mind, he thought he should be set free if Jane was willing to forgive him. According to him... She was the only friend he'd made in Ashland. I don't know if she'd call you a friend at this point. She still loves me, though. I mean, honestly, she cares for me. She wants the best for me. That's what's so bad about the situation more than anything. Yeah. She still cares. I want to it was among a laundry list of unhinged statements Sean made, possibly the most unhinged statement so far. But the captain wasn't done with Sean. He wondered if he'd had a hand in some of the other disappearances around Ashland and decided to direct the conversation next towards Elizabeth Griffith, the missing woman who'd met Sean through Jane and was last seen on August 16th. By that point, she'd been missing for nearly a month. Now, the patrol guys are saying you know Aunt Elizabeth? 
business. Um, met her one time when I was high. I guess I did uh, her. Well, I talked to a lot, a few people out there, but that was just like a moment. Um, played some badminton. Elizabeth come outside, talk to us. Describe Elizabeth. Um, Elizabeth, she had like blonde hair, big blonde hair, big girl. Okay. Do you know her last name? No. Griffith? Sounds familiar? So far, it seemed, Sean was ready to corroborate the facts. But when the questioning got a little more personal, Sean became defensive. Did you ever hook up with her? Did you ever try to? No. Not like that. Not like that. How? Oh, I don't see her like that. Hooking up with her. How do you see her? Just trying to find her way. As the captain continued questioning Sean about Elizabeth's disappearance, he held back one very important piece of information. Police had recently discovered that one of the last phone calls Elizabeth made before she'd gone missing was to Sean. It's very important that we find Elizabeth because she's got some psychological issues. She's got some health issues, some medical issues. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, if you were to know where she was and we could find her, that would go a long way to help him. Yeah. You know where she's at? Wish I could help. Sean continued denying knowing about Elizabeth's disappearance, but outside the interrogation room, police were already pursuing the possibility he may have been involved. While rescuing Jane from the abandoned house, officers had noticed the unmistakable smell of decomposing bodies. They were now just waiting on a search warrant to come through in order to search the rest of the house. You know what we're going to do today is we've got a lot of work to do. We'll, have to, we'll go through that house and we're going to collect some evidence. And what I'm afraid is one of the places that we go through today, because we'll go through the Heston Clark building because you stayed there. We'll look on the railroad tracks because you stayed there. I'm afraid that we're going to find some evidence related to Elizabeth. And if that's the case and you haven't talked to me about it and been straight up with me, it's not going to look good. At that moment, Sean realized he'd been backed into a corner. There was no escaping now, and he started talking about Elizabeth. She's set free. No more problems. She'll have to cry no more. How'd you set her free? She kept crying to me. Look how much made this world and everything. She just died. At first, it looked as though Sean was going to confess, but he stopped short and continued denying having anything to do with her disappearance. As the captain concluded the interrogation, it appeared they'd reached a stalemate, but the investigation would take an intriguing turn when another detective was brought in, tasked with the mission of breaking through Sean's defenses and extracting the truth. The gentle approach of the new detective paid off as Sean finally confessed to the presence of another person in the abandoned house he'd been occupying. Is it Elizabeth? Where is she in there? In the closet. Which closet? Upstairs. And there it was, the confirmation everyone had been dreading. Sean Great had murdered Elizabeth Griffith. 
On August 16th, Sean had gone to Jean's apartment complex looking for her when he ran into Elizabeth. She asked if he wanted to hang out and go to her place and play a game of Yahtzee. Later, they headed over to Sean's house, had something to eat before she went home. Later that night, around 11 p.m., Elizabeth called Sean. It was the phone call authorities discovered during their investigation, a pivotal discovery, revealing Sean knew more than he was letting on. Elizabeth told Sean she couldn't sleep and wanted to know if he'd play a card game with her. That's when she went back over to his place. After hanging out for a couple of hours, Sean said he was ready for bed, but Elizabeth apparently wanted to keep talking. When they headed to the upstairs bedroom, Sean claimed Elizabeth started talking about suicide. That's when Sean started strangling her, in his words, to see if she really wanted to live or die. You were choking her? Did you choke her from the front or choke her from behind? Well, it just happened and I choked her, just reached out, just choked her, right? I asked her, you sure that's what you want? And, I mean, because she thought about it, like, killing herself. So, I mean, I do that in his jokes a lot of times, like, human friends, guy friends, whatever. You know what I mean? They start talking about killing herself. Well, we wait on and I joke around, see yeah. whatever, you know? But now it's to the point, it's like, okay, let's see exactly how much they really do want to die. You know what I mean? So yeah. We'll see them, all right? Yeah. She caught it, like, it's not what you want. And then she, like, started blowing up, like, she took it out of proportion. Like, I was just joking. Because of the wake up, strangle. Okay. Strangle, like, There's no way of knowing if Sean's version of events was fact or fiction. Considering the source, it's safe to say it's questionable. What's not in dispute is that Sean strangled Elizabeth to death, and when he was done, he took off her clothes and hogtied her, just in case she regained consciousness. But she never did. Sean then put her body in the bedroom closet, covered her with clothes and stuffed animals, and then sealed the door shut with duct tape. I put her in a closet, threw a bunch of clothes in the closet and shut it. I just been killing all the flies, opening the window and the flies out. It's crazy. It's surprising stink is what, what it does. Yeah. It soaks in. The smell soaking in everything else, though. Clothes. Sean denied any sexual motivation behind the murder, instead explaining he was trying to save her from the despair of a worthless life. When the search warrant for the abandoned house finally came through, investigators found Elizabeth's body exactly where Sean said it would be. But Sean wasn't done talking, not by a long shot. Realizing Sean had just confessed to two of the most heinous crimes the city of Ashland had ever seen, they began suspecting he might be responsible for yet another recent unsolved case. The disappearance of Stacy Stanley, a 43-year-old mother who'd vanished into thin air 
after getting her tire changed at a BP gas station five days earlier. Are there any other girls in the house right now? Yeah. One down in the basement. Down in the basement? Where, what's she in? She's in the basement. She's just down in the basement? What's her name? Stacy. On September 8th, 2016, Stacy Stanley found herself with a flat tire and pulled into a gas station. After getting help from a friend of her son's, Stacy left with a good Samaritan who'd also helped. Stacy had no way of knowing that the kind stranger was actually Sean Great, a cold-blooded murderer. After buying him a coffee, Stacy offered Sean a ride home since he only lived a few blocks away. But instead of just dropping him off, Sean invited her inside. At first, Sean claimed they just talked, but eventually started kissing. You started making her up and everything was fine, right? Then she started playing all innocent. Like she didn't want to go farther than that? Yeah, and that's when I called her out and shook her daddies. Sean was insinuating Stacy had been having a forbidden relationship with the family friend who'd come and help change her tire. When she said it wasn't true, Sean said he became enraged and attacked her. In his opinion, Stacy was just another manipulative woman. That's when Sean began to sexually assault her, filming it on his cell phone. And Stacy fought back, spraying Sean with a can of mace she always kept on her. But Sean didn't stop. He then strangled her to death, just as he'd done with Elizabeth. How long did you keep Stacy before she... Oh, it's about an hour. It's about an hour? Short time. Yeah, she flipped up, acted up. Choice. You didn't have a choice. Do you really? I mean, think about it. Did you have? Did you really have a choice whether to kill her or or not? After murdering Stacy, Sean dragged her body to the basement of the abandoned house and covered her with trash. The same house Stacy's family had begged authorities to search in the days following her disappearance. But instead of looking inside, police suggested Stacy had most likely relapsed. Since August 16th, Sean had abducted three women in Ashland, Ohio Elizabeth Griffith, Stacy Stanley, and Jane. Two of them he'd murdered, leaving their bodies to decompose inside the filthy abandoned house. The third had miraculously escaped. But what had caused a 40-year-old man to suddenly snap and start abducting, raping, and killing women? The truth was, Sean wasn't a seemingly ordinary man who'd snapped. He'd been that way for a long time. Detectives were now about to find out that the man they'd initially arrested for kidnapping Jane was actually a bonafide serial killer who'd go on to confess to three more murders. Sean Great was born on August 8, 1976, the youngest child of Teresa and Terry Great. Sean's oldest sister, Barbara, had a different father from Teresa's previous marriage when she was only 14 years old, with a man seven years older. Like many children, 
Sean enjoyed playing sports and spending time with other kids. Described as friendly, charming, good-looking, and the object of affection for many neighborhood girls. But there was also a dark side to him as well. Young Sean had a penchant for setting fires, one he never outgrew. In 1982, Sean's parents divorced, and the children went with their mother, Teresa. But life with their mom was difficult, as she struggled with alcohol abuse. She was also cold and distant, leaving most of the child raising to Barbara, the oldest. During his formative years, Sean yearned for his mother's attention, but instead she painted a grim picture of his future, warning him that his genetics had predisposed him to becoming a pervert or alcoholic, hurtful words that no doubt had left a lasting impression. When Sean was 11, Teresa left the kids to live with a boyfriend in Kentucky. When she eventually did return to the area, Sean moved back in with her, but the damage had already been done. Sean was perpetually angry with his mother, disliking any man she brought home, because in his eyes, they were nothing more than his mother's next meal ticket, and he began to fantasize about killing her, if only to put her out of her misery. At 18, these violent fantasies became all too real for Sean, but instead of attacking his mother, it was his girlfriend's throat he grabbed. After the assault, Sean was arrested and spent three days in jail, but this would be just the beginning of what would eventually become an extensive rap sheet. In October of 1996, Sean was arrested for breaking into a home in Marion County and charged with felony burglary. In 1999, he broke into his pregnant 17-year-old girlfriend's home and choked her. Later that year, he broke into her house again, this time assaulting her with a butcher knife as she held their infant son. And her wounds were so severe, she needed surgery. Sean spent four years in prison. If the goal of Sean's sentence had been rehabilitation, it didn't work because Sean picked up right where he'd left off. And in 2003, he sexually assaulted the same woman again. But Sean was only charged with domestic assault. Then in 2005, Sean met a woman named Christina who'd become his girlfriend for the next five years. Christina would later describe Sean as a jealous, abusive, manipulative person who'd taken complete control over her life to the point where she wasn't even allowed to look out of the windows of their home. Throughout that time, Sean's mother Teresa was still in his life, and although he still often thought about killing her, he also felt a sense of loyalty to her. If anyone crossed his mother, Sean would see to it that they paid with their life. And that day came in 2006, when Sean believed his mother had been scammed by a magazine salesperson. There's this lady, she buys some magazines, she bought over magazines, right, to my mom. And my mom paid her, and, well, no, she ordered magazines. She didn't actually just give them, she had to order them. So she paid like $40 for these magazines, and then she never got them. In May of 2006, 
23-year-old Louisiana native Dana Lowry was traveling across the country selling magazine subscriptions when her sales trip brought her to North Central Ohio. Somewhat of a free spirit, Dana was also the mother of two young daughters who lived with their father in Louisiana. Although they lived with their father, that didn't stop Dana from calling her kids at least three times a week to check in on them. As a part of her sales route, Dana came across Teresa McFarland, selling her a few magazine subscriptions for $40. But when the magazines didn't arrive in the time frame she'd expected, Teresa began complaining to Sean, saying she wished Dana was dead. Well, Sean took his mother's words seriously and decided it was up to him to get revenge. So he tracked Dana down, pretending to be interested in the magazine she was selling. He then lured her to his grandparents' home he was renovating. When they went inside, Sean immediately confronted Dana about ripping off his mother. But when Dana claimed she didn't know who Sean's mother was, he became enraged and put Dana in a chokehold, strangling her until she was unconscious. She's in your bedroom, and you are... Face to face, she tries to get out of the bedroom. Tell us what happens from there. I back her out, I turn her around. She comes towards me, I knock her hands around, knock her whole body around, and just grab her like she just was meant to be choked out. Okay. I mean, it fell right in my hand. Okay. I set her back, laid down, and I actually laid down and left her. We was laying down. I'm just side by side. And is that upstairs or downstairs? At what point did you stab her in the neck? Was she still alive then or not alive? She woke up. She woke up from the strangulation? Downstairs. downstairs. She woke up downstairs. So when you took her downstairs, did you take her down thinking she was dead? No. No, because I, I knew before that was just a cheat. That was just a little temporary, like pass out. Okay. They're dealing with friends and playing around with the pass out games. So you went downstairs, and then what happened? She woke up. Yeah, I panicked. I didn't know what to do. I ran upstairs and grabbed my kitchen. You know, the first thing I did when I went downstairs, stabbed her in the neck. After murdering Dana, Sean threw a party and had a roaring bonfire with friends. He'd put a couch in front of the door to make sure no one went inside and discovered Dana in the basement. Afterwards, he took Dana's things, wrapped her body up in a blanket, and tossed her by the side of the road. Months later, he returned and set her body on fire, destroying any evidence. Dana's remains wouldn't be discovered until spring of 2007, when a man collecting scrap metal stumbled across it. After murdering Dana, Sean continued his relationship with Christina as though nothing had happened and even proposed to her with the ring he'd stolen from Dana. Until 2010, things seemed to be going fairly well for the couple, until it wasn't and Christina kicked Sean out, but not before he broke her hand and took off. For a week, police searched for Sean, 
Chillingly, he'd been hiding the whole time under the couch in Christina's apartment. She had no idea. When Sean was finally apprehended and arrested, he was charged yet again with domestic violence and fined $150, but he only served six months, with 10 days off for good behavior. In 2011, Sean married a woman named Amber he'd met at church, and in the beginning, she said he was kind and loving, to the point they even had a daughter together. But less than a year after the wedding, Amber filed for divorce, as well as a restraining order. By February 2015, Sean was completely adrift and living in Mansfield, Ohio, where he met his next victim, 31-year-old mother of three, Rebecca Lacey. In recent years, Rebecca had fallen on hard times and after struggling with a drug addiction, turned to sex work to make ends meet, which is how she met Sean. Where did you meet Rebecca the first time? That's uh, a real town. Disrupt, I mean in Mansfield. 20 hours. So I met her. Oh, as a prostitute? She seemed like a good person and everything. I mean, we've met several times okay. as a friend. Where did you meet her? Rebecca was reported missing on February 6, 2015, and although her family had searched for her, it wasn't until March that a natural gas employee found her body behind a tree in Mansfield. Her death was ruled a suspicious heroin overdose. Only Sean knew the real truth. Sean told detectives Rebecca was visiting him at a store his friend owned in nearly 2015. She came over. I went to the bathroom, right? I had some money. My wallet. And this first thing I did, I was just checking my wallet. And it was gone. So I her. She wanted to leave. Snatched her up. We fought. And I had been up. So she swept. Reached in her pocket, got my money. She woke up. And then I went to the house, just waiting for her to wake up. Um, she woke up. First thing she did, you know, she panicked. I like, tried to calm her down. Tried to get up with leave. How did you finish her off? The amount of money Rebecca had stolen from Sean was $4. And after murdering her, Sean hid her body in the basement of his friend's shop until he got a car to move her a few days later. After stuffing her body inside of a golf bag, Sean carried it outside in broad daylight and out to the woods, only to be discovered a month later. Rebecca's death was ruled a drug overdose. A few months later, toward the end of 2015, Sean met someone else, 29-year-old mother of two, Candace Cunningham. After meeting Sean, 
Candace was ecstatic about her new relationship and told her mother she was going to marry the perfect man. On Christmas Day, she even changed her Facebook status to married. What she hadn't told her mother was that she was living with Sean in absolute squalor, a cramped single room with no running water and stolen electricity. This is where they lived together for the next six months until the arguing started. Three o'clock in the morning, I hit in the face with a bag of tobacco. She hit you in the face with a bag of tobacco? Yeah. Candace had woken Sean up to get him to roll her a cigarette, and he wasn't pleased. I grabbed her against my choker. She passed out. Grabbed her from behind and passed out. I mean, I, I was irritable. I had enough. I just finished her. The next evening, Sean wrapped up Candace's body in a blanket and took her to an abandoned house in Mansfield, secluded in a wooded area. A few days later, he set the house on fire, burning Candace's body. On June 20th, firefighters arrived to put the fire out, unaware that a corpse was hidden by the smoke and debris. By that point, no one even knew Candace was missing. As far as her family knew, she'd moved to North Carolina. Soon Sean was evicted from the room he shared with Candace for stealing tools, destroying property, and not paying rent. Coincidentally, after Sean was evicted in June, the landlord's truck was set on fire. No one was ever charged for the crime. Sean had literally burned all his bridges in Mansfield, and in June of 2016, right after murdering Candace, he went on the run until he found himself squatting in the Charles Mill Lake State Park campgrounds. After extensive interviews and interrogations with Sean, Ashland detectives were completely stunned. When they brought Sean in for the crimes he committed against Jane, they never imagined their perpetrator would then go on to confess to five murders spanning the course of a decade. Dana Lowry in 2006 for selling magazine subscriptions to his mother, Rebecca Lacey in 2015 for stealing $4 from his wallet, Candace Cunningham in June of 2016 for hitting him with a bag of tobacco, Elizabeth Griffith in August of 2016 for struggling with her mental health, Stacy Stanley in September of 2016 for not wanting to sleep with him. And Jane, also in September of 2016, who he'd abducted and had escaped. In two cases, no one knew the women were even missing. And in the other, the woman's death was blamed on a drug overdose. The terrifying part was that Sean had almost gotten away with all of it. In fact, He'd been planning his next escape when he kidnapped Jane. You see, he knew that with a house full of bodies, he'd eventually have to leave Ashland, and his relationship with Jane would have to come to an end. His plan was to burn the house down he'd been squatting in to cover up the evidence of his crimes. After all, it had worked before. The house was intentionally full of trash, because it was meant to be kindling for his next fire, and Sean had already a stash of provisions waiting for him on his way out of town. But before he left, 
there was one more twisted thing left to do. Sean's grand plan was to kidnap Jane and impregnate her so she'd have his child, leaving a lasting, living legacy behind before fleeing the city altogether. Of course, Sean knew that Jane would never willingly agree to it, so he prepared his bed with restraints to tie her down. Sean told detectives his plan was to let Jane go after raping her, trusting her that she'd give him enough time to burn down the house and escape the city before she called police. However, knowing everything we know about Sean, there's absolutely zero reason to believe he would have ever let Jane live. In fact, it's almost certain that Sean would have done what he always did, find an excuse to kill. But Jane fought back, summoning every ounce of courage to escape, potentially saving the lives of many other future victims. When it came time for Sean's case to go to trial, his defense team submitted a not guilty plea on September 29th, 2016. An amazing choice, considering the mountain of evidence, including the hours and hours of taped confessions. Sean's first trial would be for his crimes against Elizabeth, Stacy, and Jane. But during his court-appointed psychological interviews, Sean continued talking about the other murders he committed, to the point he had to be asked to stop talking on multiple occasions. It seemed Sean just wanted to lighten his guilty conscience, a tough task considering everything he'd done. It already wasn't looking good for Sean, but he made it all the more easier to prosecute him when he went to the press with his stories, admitting to all five murders just a week after his not guilty plea. As a result, a gag order was imposed on Sean and his legal team changed their plea to not guilty by reason of insanity. But during his competency hearing in 2017, Sean was determined to have been sane at the time of the crimes. A man who goes to the trouble of torching multiple crime scenes to get rid of evidence is a man who knows he's done wrong. His defense team then withdrew their insanity plea. At trial, Jane's testimony as Sean's only surviving kidnapping victim was crucial to the prosecution's case. She gave a voice to the victims that couldn't be there to speak for themselves. Bravely, she recounted her harrowing ordeal in front of a room full of strangers, Sean himself, as well as cross-examination. In the end, the jury found Sean guilty on all charges and recommended the death penalty. His punishment was now in the hands of the judge. But before making the final decision, Sean was given an opportunity to address the courtroom in front of the many family members of his victims. This day is a good day, mainly for all of you guys and myself. You know, I hope we could just move on from all this. You know, I don't know exactly, you know, I can't say I'm normal, but you know, I know right from wrong. And uh, mainly, just uh, if I cause any hate, bitterness, and then all of any of you, you can work on that. I ask you to maybe forgive me. 
find your heart someday. I know not today, but someday. You just move on from this life. And may justice be served today. It was now the family's turn to make their victim impact statements. And for an hour, Sean sat and watched, nodded in agreement, as person after person got up to speak about how Sean had brought devastation to their lives. Stacy's son had this to say. You ever bury your mother? I had to pick a casket out. I didn't expect that this young. I had to go in there and pick a casket out. And he made it to where I couldn't even have an open casket to say goodbye to her. From Elizabeth's mother's statement, it was evident she found it challenging to reconcile the teachings of her faith with what she felt deep in her heart. You are evil. God tells me to forgive you. And only because he said it, I'll forgive you. But I don't feel it in my heart. Stacy's brother spoke these simple words. Real justice would be for you to come with me for about five minutes. Burn in hell. The judge was in agreement with the jury's recommendation that Sean was sentenced to death for the murders of Elizabeth and Stacy and life without parole for the kidnapping and rape of Jane. On March 1st, 2019, he pled guilty to the murders of Rebecca and Candace and received life in prison without parole and 17 years to life respectively. Finally, on September 11, 2019, he pled guilty to the murder of Dana, his first known victim, and received life without parole, plus an additional 16 years. Sean Great is now on death row, his execution date officially scheduled for March 19, 2025. However, there's been an unofficial moratorium on capital punishment in Ohio since 2020. Sean's ultimate fate now rests in the hands of state legislators. In the years following Sean's horrific crimes, the abandoned house was demolished, where he'd held Jane captive and murdered Stacy and Elizabeth. But just because the house is now gone, doesn't mean what happened there will be forgotten. In 2019, Dana Lowry's identity was officially confirmed by the DNA Doe Project 13 years after her murder. When she stopped calling, the father of her children believed she'd started over and moved on with her life. Her remains have now been returned home to her family in Louisiana. Rebecca Lacey's father had a hard time equating the polite young man he knew with the man who'd murdered his daughter, and he still has doubts. Candace Cunningham's family thought she'd moved to North Carolina and had no idea she was even missing, let alone murdered, until Sean led authorities to her body. Elizabeth Griffith struggled with the difficult hand she'd been dealt in life, but did everything she could to work with those circumstances, giving generously to others, even when it meant she'd go without. 
Stacy Stanley came from a huge loving family, and the pain of their loss is only equal to their anger with authorities for not taking her disappearance more seriously. In the end, Jane miraculously survived her horrific ordeal thanks to her bravery and determination to live. In 2016, Cleveland19.com interviewed her family, breaking the news to them that it was their daughter, their sister, that was the survivor of the Ohio Strangler. They hadn't spoken to Jane in years. Her father was quoted as saying, It looks like the other girl's parents. They won't talk to their daughters again. At least I got a shot at it. Even those closest to Sean have no sympathy for the man who eventually revealed himself as the Ohio Strangler. In Sean's own mother's words to the Daily Mail, she said, He's good-looking, but the devil's good-looking too. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, extra content, and Patreon-exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. To find us on Instagram and Facebook, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. And also, by checking out our sponsors and using our promo codes, you're also helping support the show. We've got all the links in our episode notes. So until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs>